The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Hypertensive urgency is increasingly becoming a term with a limited evidence base behind it. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from April Annals of Internal Medicine from the Annals for Hospice Inpatients Notes section titled Inpatient Hypertension to Treat or Tolerate. Discussing it will be the two authors, Dr. Tim Anderson, who's an instructor of medicine at Harvard and the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He's a primary care physician and a clinical investigator who studies chronic disease management across settings of care. Joining him is Dr. Charlie Ray, who's an assistant professor of medicine at UCSF, He's a hospital and health services researcher. He's also the digital media editor and the director of the Journal of Hospital Medicine's editorial fellowship program. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you all so much for joining uh, us on this podcast. This is such an important issue uh, that we see all the time in the hospital. I think the best way to start is to figure out exactly what a hypertensive emergency is and why we might not want to use the term hypertensive urgency. Is this a crutch that people use? Tim, do you have any thoughts about this? I think hypertensive urgency is increasingly becoming a term with a limited limited evidence base behind it. So when I think of hypertensive emergency definitions, we think of both having a high blood pressure, so traditionally uh, blood pressure over 180, over 120 uh, millimeters of mercury, coupled with some evidence of target and organ damage. And I think even um, what we call end organ damage may be shifting over time with some obvious examples like strokes and heart attacks and some less perhaps discrete entities like hypertensive encephalopathy um, and even pulmonary edema where um, getting to the source of whether that's truly caused by hypertension is, I think, increasingly challenged a bit. This is in contrast to this idea of hypertensive urgency, which uh, might be a bit of a misnomer, uh, which is having a high blood pressure, traditionally 180 over uh, 110 is what I've seen most often, without any sort of symptoms or end organ damage. So truly uh, a number as opposed to perhaps a condition or a clinical syndrome. Just to expand on that, Charlie, uh, I get these patients admitted and the ER has given them IV hydralazine and half the time the blood pressure is bottomed out. I've sort of banned IV hydralazine from my service because if, if they need something IV, I think they should be in the ICU. As, as a hospitalist, how do you approach this, Charlie? That's a, that's a great question. And I think um, one of the things uh, that I think a lot of inpatient practitioners are moving towards is really sort of personalizing the care around the individualized, around the patient that we're actually seeing in front of us. So to take your example of what you sort of proposed, which is the patient coming in from the ER, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm actually going to approach that patient and try to figure out when was the last time they took their blood pressure medications? Why was their blood pressure high? Why did they get the IV hydralazine? And now why is their blood pressure so low? So I think 
one of the central ideas is really trying to dig deep into the data that we can get both from the patient um, and from the electronic healthcare records that we now have. And so I think that's the larger approach um, that I take to my patients now. Um, I'm somewhat like you at this point in time. I cannot remember the last time I ordered IV hydralazine on a patient because I've found that I can probably solve the problem with tweaking the patient's home blood pressure medications and going from there. So the IV meds on uh, whenever I'm on service have certainly fallen out of favor, both as an individual and whenever I'm on the teaching service. Tim, if someone comes to your office and their blood pressure is 180 over 120. Do you immediately admit them to the hospital so we can so we can treat them aggressively? I don't. It's interesting. Every once in a while, when precepting residents, um, that that's proposed. You know, should we should we send this patient whose blood pressure is 180 over 120 to the ER? And as Charlie mentioned, I think in outpatient management, the same first steps of trying to get to the bottom of is this is this where this patient tends to live? Did this person not take their blood pressure medicines before their appointment, which happens more often than I ever would expect? Partly helps helps us make that decision. I would say I almost never, again, I guess in the absence of some sort of additional alarming symptoms like some new trouble breathing or chest pain, we'll send folks in for evaluation. And much more often, if the patient's agreeable to some short-term follow-up, we'll either try to kind of start an outpatient plan and get them back into our clinic within a couple days, or these days, uh, even think more and more about telehealth if we do have the ability to get them a blood pressure cuff or something at home so that we can really work on more of a days-to-weeks plan instead of an hour-to-hour plan. So I'm going to put words into both your mouths. When faced with a clinical problem, start working on the diagnosis before you start the treatment. At least have an idea of what you're treating. And what you both were saying is let's figure out why the blood pressure is so high and is it anything that we have to worry about today or is it a long-term problem we can follow up? And I think that's wonderful, wonderful advice. I, I don't think I put words in y'all's mouth, did I? That was great, Bob. Yep. Charlie, you and I both see a lot of people who are in the hospital and their blood pressure jumps up and the nurse calls the house staff and then the next day you find out that something was done and they hadn't thought it through. What are the varied reasons that the blood pressure goes up while they're in the hospital? So that, let's say they come in, it's up, it comes down, that goes up, it comes down, drives somebody crazy. This is a great question. I think uh, something that all you know, good internists and hospitalists need to be aware of. So some of the more common issues that we know and think about, um, of course, are pain and discomfort, right? Patients are in the hospital for various numbers of reasons, and oftentimes, uh, you know, they're in pain and they, they're, they're not their normal selves. So this can be a driver of, of inpatient elevated uh, blood pressures as well. Nausea and vomiting, um, another issue that we see a lot of. I like to use the idea of also of white coat syndrome, right, which is more commonly associated in the outpatient setting. But one of the arguments in things that I'll teach on services, you know, you can have this same entity in the um, inpatient setting as well. Anything else that can cause an increase in the sympathetic drive, uh, what I think of that is sort of um, withdrawal syndrome. So alcohol, um, opioid, benzo withdrawals are all very, can very commonly manifest themselves with, with elevated blood pressure. I also think about iatrogenic issues. So what are we doing to the patient that might be causing the elevated blood pressure? And some of the medications I commonly think of are, are NSAIDs and steroids. And then, of course, recent interventions or procedures. If you're on a co-management service and a patient had a TKA a day or two prior, they've got a, probably a pretty good reason to have a, a, an elevated blood pressure. And then the final one that, that I commonly think of and like to teach around is the idea of just plain old uncontrolled primary hypertension, right? 
There's some good studies that show that among patients who received IV antihypertensive medications while in the hospitalized setting, um, 40% of them were not on their home medication regimen. So a good amount of the individuals who have elevated blood pressure in the hospital um, just aren't on the same medication regimen that they were when they were in the outpatient setting. What, what do you think are the reasons for that? The stereotypical example that pops into my mind is the patient comes in, their blood pressure is a little soft for you know any varying number of reasons. Uh, maybe they have sepsis and you know the intern or the resident doesn't necessarily want to mask anything. So what do they do? They hold one or two of the blood pressure medications. We hold those for one, two, three days, and the patient you know invariably gets better over that time. But we forgot that we held their home blood pressure medications. And over time, the blood pressure starts to rise. And what do we do instead? We start these IV PRN medications um, rather than just restarting the patient's home Losartan, which is what we should have done in the first place. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Losartan because I was thinking mostly of ACE inhibitors and ARBs are always being held. The creatinine went up from 0.7 to 1 and everybody got nervous. And the other ones that are always held are the thiazide diuretics that they're on to, to help the other blood pressure medicines work. And I love the thought that we forget why we stop them and when the blood pressure goes up, why we didn't reintroduce them. And, and that really leads into one of the great parts of the article that you wrote, and that is the disconnect between how we treat the blood pressure and how hard we should try to control the blood pressure in the hospital, and then that disconnect with sending the patient back to their primary care physician or their subspecialist, whoever is taking care of their blood pressure. I'm sure you've been on the receiving end of this, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I try to teach our residents and one of the things I think about when I see patients coming out of the hospital, even beyond blood pressure, is just, you know, how are any chronic medications changed, whether they're diabetes, whether they're blood pressure, whether they're pain medicines? And does it make sense to kind of keep with these changes? I think with blood pressure, um, we often fall into one of one or two circumstances. One is if a patient happened to be hospitalized in the same health system or kind of shared record system uh, that we have, we're sometimes able to, especially at least at my institution with pretty good discharge summaries, get a sense of why a decision was made to be have a blood pressure medication changed. But even those decisions sometimes reflect a really short-term kind of, you know, somebody's blood pressure was sky high in the hospital, but I look back and in the year prior to being in that hospital, their blood pressure has actually been right where I wanted it, kind of right at goal. Um, another another scenario I see a lot is sometimes folks are hospitalized in a system that didn't have access to the outpatient records, may have changed a whole bunch of medicines in part because they may have not actually known what the patient was taking before they came into the hospital. And they may be making decisions based on a patient who can't quite remember their medicines or a patient who um, has old records from years ago. So often, Kind of the first step I, I think about in the outpatient piece is just, are, are we reconciling that the patient's taken what they were told to take and how much does that match what I used to be telling them to take or what one of my residents used to be thinking that those patients were taking? One of the things we see pretty commonly is that once somebody comes home and is kind of back in their usual state of health and those stresses that Charlie was just talking about are removed our blood pressures may look a lot more like they did before that hospital stay, or sometimes because hospitalization doesn't just end when you leave the door, but folks may be more frail or still in a recovery period in the few days, 30 days after hospitalization. We actually see that folks' blood pressure runs somewhat lower, uh, worrying that kind of adding those additional blood pressure medicines could lead to over-treatment 
um, and associated harms, both in terms of side effects for the patients, like having trouble standing and having dizziness and orthostasis, and even more severe harms, like risks of falls and other problems. I've had a number of patients over the years admitted because the team before me, when they were inpatient, readjusted their medicines. They went back to their primary care physician. But for some reason, even though we actually have PharmDs who try to explain the changes to the patient, the patient takes the new medicine and takes the old medicine, and therefore their blood pressure drops and they end up back in the hospital. And this is not just for hypertension. This is a general principle about the danger of us changing things in the hospital with a patient who might have some difficulty with health literacy and uh, remembering. Uh, Charlie, is that a is this a problem that you see on your service? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, on a daily, weekly basis, um, w- when I interact with patients about their medications over the years, I think I've become more attuned to this issue and the importance of it. You know, the way I sort of think about it is when patients are hospitalized, we put, you know, we do a million dollar workup on them. But if we send them out of the hospital and don't actually tell them what we did and sort of give them good directions, then that million dollar workup is can be f- somewhat useless um, in some settings. So this is an issue that, uh, again, I've become much more uh, emphatic about when when I'm dealing with patients at this point in time. In fact, I was on service this past weekend and literally spent 15, 20 minutes with a patient writing everything out so that they could understand the the medication regimen that they were sending them home on. Uh, Because I knew that if this guy didn't end up taking his medications properly, he was going to be right back on my service within a week. On the outpatient side, Tim, is this something, how often do you discover this? I think I see it quite a bit. Maybe one of the most common patterns I see is I actually think our our patients are pretty good at pattern recognition. And sometimes they'll notice, you know, I was sent home after my pneumonia with an antibiotic and a steroid and a blood pressure medicine, and I was told to finish them up. So I'll take them till they're out and then I'll stop them because a lot of patients will say those are the medicines the hospital gave me. So those are what I'm being treated for from the hospital. And then once that medicine runs out, they'll never take it again, which is the right move for the antibiotic and the steroid. Not sure if it's the right move for the blood pressure, but just like you said, often they'll view that as a little bit of a different set of treatments than their home medicine. So right on through that, they may be taking the same home medicines. And to some extent, I think there's a fair amount of initial sense at that with patients that if we don't give them that context of kind of for each change we're making, what exactly is the reason and how does that interact with your other medicines that it wouldn't surprise me if I kind of pursued the same path as a patient to just make that assumption. Anything I was given when I was leaving the hospital, I should finish up because hopefully I'm not going back to the hospital. Right. And what I observe is sometimes we'll go and explain things, what we think is absolutely clearly, but the patient's under so much stress when they're in the hospital and there so many things are being thrown at them. Sometimes I'm very relieved when there's a significant other there who I know is intelligent is going to pay attention and straighten them out because I think a lot of patients just confuse just f- with hospitalization. Sort of like to finish with a discussion of the VA study that y'all talked about, about the dangers of uh, tampering with the uh, outpatient hypertensives. Maybe you could discuss that study because I think that's something that all of us who work on the inpatient side need to be much more aware of. Sure, absolutely. Um, To summarize the set of studies and briefly, 
What we did was look at older adults who were hospitalized in one of the national VA hospitals, um, specifically for a condition we didn't think had to do much with blood pressure. So we used pneumonia, urinary tract infections, and venous thromboembolism as an example. And we identified whether or not they were sent home on either a new blood pressure medicine or a higher dose of their home blood pressure medicines. And then we tracked them out over time for 30-day outcomes and then a year. And we mainly asked three questions. We asked, if you got more blood pressure medicines, were you more likely to have any adverse events? And we used the same kind of outcomes that the big blood pressure trials like Sprint use, asking about acute kidney injury or falls um, or other electrolyte disturbances that might wind with you up back up into the hospital. We also looked at whether these folks had a reduction in cardiovascular events, because ideally that's what we're treating when we treat this blood pressure. It's not just the number, but we're trying to reduce the risk of strokes and heart attacks. And then finally, we asked, getting to this idea of medication confusion that we've already come up with once, is just getting more medicines associated with a in general risk of ending up back in the hospital. And here we were just asking kind of from that metric of 30-day readmissions that is such a big focus of payment and health policy, whether these medication changes were associated with a higher or lower risk. And what we found, and we used um, propensity-matched analyses to try to compare apples to apples instead of apples to oranges so that we could say that the patients who got these medicines were pretty similar to the patients who didn't get these intensified blood pressure medicines, is that the folks who got these blood pressure medicines had a higher risk of all-cause readmission and a higher risk of adverse events in the first 30 days. But actually, even out to one year, they didn't have a reduction in cardiovascular events, suggesting that we're putting people at short-term risks when they go out of the hospital of having things like falls and acute kidney injury without necessarily providing long-term benefit in terms of reduction of heart attacks, strokes, and similar episodes. And part of the reason I think um, now getting just into speculating the reasons for our findings is that people may not actually adhere to these medicines for that for a long enough course to find a benefit from these intensifications, whether that's because their outpatient doctor changes them back to their home regimen, whether that's because they were overtreated, or they experience a mild side effect and then end up no longer taking these medicines. It may be that if you change something in the middle of somebody being acutely ill, they may not kind of be the most likely folks to stick with that more intensive treatment regimen for long enough to find a benefit from it. I'm so glad that you included that study because I think it's, it's a very, very important point. Let's finish up with July 2020. Uh, we have brand new interns, brand new residents. We're sitting down with them the very first day, and part of our discussion is how to write orders for hypertension so that the nurse won't bother you because the blood pressure is 160 over 100. So, Charlie, you do this all the time. What are you trying to teach your house staff and your students and your colleagues and how to not be pressured into treating these blood pressures? This is a great question. And I think what I like to do is first start off with the idea of what is it we're actually trying to accomplish by controlling blood pressure in the hospital setting, right? And I think Tim mentioned this in, in his summary here just a second ago, but like a central issue that I think everybody has to understand is that the benefits of improved blood pressure accrue over months 
and not years. So with the average hospital stay being around five days, what we're gonna do over the next five days most likely is not going to impact the long-term cardiovascular benefits of, the, of improving patients' blood pressure. So I like to give them some framework of what we're working with during the hospitalization. And with that, um, I say, while you know, Sprint says you know, blood pressure goal of 120 over 80 and we're trying to aim for those things, we actually don't know what the optimal blood pressure is over the next five days while this patient is hospitalized. So let's start off with that uncertainty. But then let's also understand that patients can be just fine with elevated blood pressures up to 180s, up to 200s, and we're okay with that. But how we manage it in, in the hospital can be actually quite important uh, uh, in general. And so what I would sort of urge those interns to do is, of course, um, as we mentioned at the start of the show, which is gather all the data you possibly can on your patient, understand how their blood pressure is being managed in the outpatient setting, how can we best translate that into the inpatient setting, and then as you're entering these orders and as you're communicating with the individuals who are actually implementing this, i.e. our nursing colleagues, you have to talk to them. You have to let them know, um, you know what our goals are, what we're trying to achieve um, so that you're not getting hammer page for the blood pressure of 150 over 60 um, um, every two or three hours uh, and, and then subsequently having to put on that PRN antihypertensive. So I think that's how I would sort of largely structure that conversation is basically, you know, what are our goals for the place? over the next five days, and how do we best accomplish that with working with your nursing colleagues? And I'm going to add a piece of wisdom that was given to me 45 years ago when I was an intern, and that is if you're going to change something, change one thing. If you change two or three things and something goes wrong, you don't know what to blame. So try to make minimal changes. You can add one medicine or change a dose of one medicine and then see what happens. But don't go crazy and, and change four things at once because you're brilliant and you think you know the best way to take care of this problem because th that'll, that'll bite you every time. The other thing to, to add on top of that, Bob, is when to expect a change as well. Um, oftentimes, you know, oh, I'm going to start this amlodipine on this patient and by 3 p.m. the blood pressure is going to be perfect. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. And so I think readjusting expectations around this as well is really important. Well, thank you all so much for writing the article and uh, for giving such a uh, well-defined uh, discussion of a very, very common uh, hospital problem that probably has not gotten enough attention. But thanks to the two of you, uh, I think it is starting to get uh, the attention it deserves. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Now it's time for Bob's pearls. Even significant hypertension in the hospital may not define an urgent situation. You need to start by diagnosing why the patient is hypertensive if it's not hypertensive emergency. It could be not taking their home meds, the amount of pain they're in, having an infection being under stress, or withdrawal from alcohol or opiates. We rarely need to give IV antihypertensives unless we have a true hypertension emergency. Finally, we should really have a very good reason for changing the outpatient antihypertensives. If we do so, we need to explain it very carefully to the patient and contact his or her primary care physician to make sure we have good coordination of care. And try to only change one thing at a time because otherwise you'll get confused when there are side effects. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast.
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.